Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Exposing the fakers and the takers. And we uh, begin on uh, this installment by discussing uh, what is happening in Minneapolis, what happened over the weekend with the protests. Thankfully, from most of the coverage I've seen, the protests were largely peaceful around the country, so that's good. Uh, But the movement to defund police, reimagine policing, uh, that is uh, perhaps most aggressively happening in Minneapolis, uh, not so good. Of course, uh, the Sandinista mayor of New York City trying to jump on the bandwagon too. Bill de Blasio talking about uh, cutting uh, an undisclosed percentage of the $6 billion budget from NYPD and uh, redirecting it to social service providers. This is all the signaling stage here. But with respect to Minneapolis, at a rally on Sunday, a supermajority of members of the city council, led by Keith Ellison's son, who's a city council member, said, no, the police are going to be defunded. The Minneapolis Police Department, as it currently is constituted, will be no more. And they haven't quite figured out, settled on the approach they're going to take to law enforcement in Minneapolis after the Minneapolis Police Department has been defunded and disbanded. I don't know if they're going to go with like a country club halfway house honor system or something perhaps a little bit more uh, confidence inspiring for the law abiding in Minneapolis. We'll see. Uh, Mayor Josh Frey, Fry, Fay, he showed up to one of the protests or one section of the protest and uh, tried to engage the uh, sizable crowd that had formed. <laughs> and, of course, uh, a sop, a pajama boy like uh, Frey, how else could he do it? How else could he do it but to pander, to talk about his brokenness? That's the means to solidarity. And uh, ultimately, he got called on the carpet to answer a single question, yes or no. And that's when things broke bad for the good mayor and his political future in that town. Listen up. You have to take responsibility here. I've been coming to grips with my own brokenness in this situation, my own failures, my own shortcomings, and I know there needs to be deep-seated structural reform in terms of how the department operates. The systemic racist system needs to be revamped. The police union needs to be put in its place. We need to make sure that everything from the union contract to the way that the arbitration functions to the way that our officers and the culture and the department behaves. Jacob Fry, we have a yes or no question for you. Hey! 
Jacob Fry, we have a yes or no question for you. Yes or no, will you commit to defunding Minneapolis Police Department? What did I say? We don't want no more police. Is that clear? We don't want people with guns toting around in our community, shooting us down. You have an answer. It is a yes or a no. It is a yes or a no. Will you defund the Minneapolis Police Department? All right, be quiet, y'all. Be quiet, because it's, it's, in, it's important that we actually hear this. It's important that we hear this, because if y'all don't know, he's up for re-election next year. If y'all don't know, he's up for re-election next year. And if he says no, guess what the f*** we going to do next year? What you say? Hey, you thought you could appease your way with your I'm broken too business, right? Nope. It's not going to work that way. By the way, I like what uh, somebody yelled when he started going into his, uh, uh, you know, self psychoanalysis analysis, which was, uh, "It's not about you." Yeah, I know. It's, but that's you have to understand the white leftists. It's just all navel gazing nonsense, particularly for a uh, jellyfish like Josh Frey. Fry. Keep struggling with that. So that's one approach. That's one approach to. Uh, reform to uh, a better relationship, more understanding between police and citizenry, if you're even going to have police. Another approach comes to us from this open letter to a protester from a Baltimore County police officer named Seth Templeton. This is really good. This is published in the Baltimore Sun. Seth Templeton's been on the Baltimore County Police Department for five years. He uh, starts out, uh, dear protester, uh, we might sit down over coffee. I would start telling you by telling you that I've done a lot of good things in my short five year career. I was the first officer on the scene for a call at a college campus where a delusional person was wandering the halls of a dormitory with a gun. In that incident, we found the person responsible just as he was about to commit a sexual assault. A few months ago, I went uh, to a call for shots fired, ran after an armed person in the dark and caught him with the help of my partners. A few weeks ago, I was part of a group of officers that caught an armed and dangerous murderer after a high-speed pursuit. In all of these incidents, no one was hurt and none of them were on the news. Goes on just to talk about his work and his experience over five years on the force. By the way, he's never had a complaint of brutality or excessive force lodged against him. He uh, goes on to talk a little bit about more, his, uh, more, more about his job. Generally, I would explain to you that not losing my temper is one small part of my job. I would offer to take you on a ride along and show you that my job is incredibly, incredibly different. I've been on a ride along on the south side of Chicago. And, uh, yeah, I can tell you just for uh, spending four or five hours with Chicago cops that night, not an easy gig. Back to Seth Templeton, I would tell you these things not to garner sympathy, but to provide you with insight into that which you might not see. 
because it's not reported. It's not the story the media amplifies. And um, he uh, goes on to, you know, wonder aloud if he had chosen a different, uh, a different career path. But he says civilized society can't exist without rules and the people to enforce those rules. Right. Someone has to take the point to go out front. Someone has to do it. And so if it must be done, it should be done right. Doing the job right demands a set of people with a deeply set inscription of ideals like integrity and personal sacrifice. It is evident to me that one of the ingredients that causes the arc of history to bend toward justice is sacrifice. I would implore you to see that we are both disgusted by bad cops or cops who do bad things, writes Templeton. And he uh, concludes his point, uh, his uh, piece, I should say, with this point. At the end of the conversation, do the generic protester. I would hope that you would see me for who I am, not what I am. I would be tempted to bring things to a close by trying to say something magnanimous while sounding without sounding silly or robotic, perhaps by mentioning the oath that I swore to uphold. So instead of repeating platitudes, I would simply remind you that even if you still hate me, if you ever dial 911 or call out for help, I will come running. I promise. I will come running. And then I would open my palm and offer you my outstretched hand. You know, uh, those conversations that happen on in competing op-eds are a start, but obviously they have to happen embedded in particular neighborhoods and particular communities. But I, but this this Seth Templeton piece, which I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show, was a really nice offering to advance the conversation beyond the screeching at people. Uh, demanding knees be bent and purity tests be passed. That exchange even is detestable and weak and pathetic. He makes Neville Chamberlain look like George Patton does that Josh Fry in Minneapolis. But even as pathetic as he is, that exchange between him and the mob, that doesn't get you anywhere. That is going nowhere fast. And so is Minneapolis. Uh, whether it's uh, Josh Fry apologizing for the rule of law or it's the mob taking over and suspending it. This is Dan Prof. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Jim Mad Money Kramer is sort of a buffoon. I mean, I, he's a smart guy and he's a successful guy, but he's sort of a clown show, too. And I get, you know, and his, you know, morning zoo crew type style for his show talking about stock picking and whatnot. But look, um, uh, when you're right, you're right. And sometimes he is. And I'm not talking about stock picking. I'm talking about general commentary on economic policy and what you see happening as a result of the policies that were chosen, specifically the lockdowns. He's been pretty solid. And he was again last week uh, offering uh, this perspective. 
it does peter out. It's kind of musical chairs. How can the market rebound without the economy? Because the market doesn't represent the economy. It represents the future of big business. The bigger the business, the more it moves the major averages. And that matters because this is the first recession where big business, along, of course, with bigger wealth, but that's not really my show, is coming through virtually unscathed, if not going for the gold. Small business, the ones that aren't publicly traded, they're dropping like flies after a government-mandated shutdown because they're non-essential. The people who work there are non-essential. It's hard enough to run a small business. How about when the government says you, you're closed and the landlord says, I don't care. That's the thing about this pandemic. It's been one of the greatest wealth transfers in history. And it's a wealth transfer that was mandated by the state. I think that we'll have a, it'll have a horrible effect on our country. One of the greatest wealth transfers in the history of America mandated by the state. And it's a wealth transfer from the have nots to the haves. We've said this for weeks on end. Wait till you start to feel the economic impacts of the policy choices. We knew who was unemployed, 40 percent of the unemployed making less than $40,000. We knew who the winners were, big tech and big government and those people who are in, you know, somewhat recession proof, although uh, a bunch of employees at BP found out today that they're not recession proof. It sounds like 10,000 layoffs announced. Uh, I assume probably a lot of executives as well. But um, what Joel Kotkin calls our neo-federalism, and it's a real problem, and we're just at the beginning of it, which is why a jobless recovery is not a good recovery. We need a, a recovery that features people getting back to work and getting on with their professional lives. For more on this, please to be joined by Joel Weber. He's a Chicago area, attorney, uh, Chicago area attorney. He was an executive at Whirlpool and GE. He is hosting a uh, free COVID-19 liability prevention briefing. Info is available at managinglegal.com, managinglegal.com. He wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal. And the headline, the headline, will lawyers act with honor after COVID? I, I read the headline and I just laughed and laughed and laughed. And then uh, after I got done with the chuckle, I read the, uh, the rest of it. And it's, a, it's a, another aspect of what we've been talking about with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been talking about. You need to make sure business kids can get back to operation without being beset by trial lawyer uh, directed litigation. Joel Weber, thanks so much for joining us. Um, will lawyers act with honor after COVID? I don't know if we can uh, trust them to do so on their own. So. Uh, do you support uh, what uh, McConnell and others have talked about, some sort of liability protection, some sort of indem in, in, uh, indemnification? Yes, absolutely. Uh, nobody has come up with specific, very detailed proposals along those lines, but the general idea is to provide a safe harbor set of rules, and if the employer, vendor, uh, this, uh, uh, retail outlet obeys, you know, the masking and the distancing and whatnot, then they can't be sued for negligence. They could be sued for gross negligence or reckless behavior or for intentional harm. But that's the general outline. Let's go back to, to uh, what Investotainer Jim Cramer was talking about as well. I mean, who is least well positioned to weather that sort of exposure? It's not uh, big corporations that have general counsels and, and the resources at their disposal to fight litigation. It's uh, the small businesses that are already hamstrung. 
Yeah, bingo. I mean, because the problem is the small business gets that com- summons and complaint uh, served on them, and they have to immediately go into this cycle I mentioned. They have to file responsive pleadings. They need to respond to document demands. And by the way, all that the lawyer for the plaintiff needs to do is know the magic words, if you will. I mean, any lawyer with a rudimentary IQ can draft a complaint alleging negligence that will survive a motion to dismiss. So you're in for all that document demands and, and depositions and whatnot before you even address, before the court even begins to consider who's at fault. Was anyone at fault? And, so, and, yes, and, that is exactly true. And by the way, as somebody who has a law degree, my experience is um, uh, all lawyers have a rudimentary IQ. Uh, As it turns out, you write in your journal piece, if companies can pivot and doctors and nurses can risk their lives to help, we lawyers should be able to dial back our greed and put our country first. And I wonder if you have had any ARDC complaints filed against you since you wrote that sentence. (laughs) Not not yet. The the only thing along those lines was one of the comments uh, to the to the post. Uh, that was made online, uh, someone suggested that an article in the Wall Street Journal suggesting that lawyers might behave honorably, he didn't know whether he was reading the journal or the onion. Yeah, Um, that's true. We lawyers, I I don't want to even speak for all lawyers, I certainly can't, but one of the things that's always bugged me about a profession for which I have great respect and that can be a very great fiduciary effort, the, the legal profession gets pretty self-righteous about what makes them money. And, and so instead of saying, well, we want this rule because it protects our marketplace for exploiting the tort system, they will say this is the effort for justice and we're up for the little guy. Yeah, so yeah. it's very hard to have a non-emotional discussion about is there Are there any bar associations uh, that have moved in this direction to try to be uh, constructive, as you're suggesting? Short answer? No. Right. <laughs> uh, I read the I read the media every morning. I go looking for this. I even am reflecting on the Twitter sphere with respect to lawyers I respect. And and um you know apart from a couple of people who are well-known uh you know tort reform advocates, the bar is just as I said in the article, silent. Mm-hmm. Joel Weber, Chicago area attorney and former executive at Whirlpool and GE. A uh, free COVID-19 liability prevention briefing available at managinglegal.com. And, and I should mention, um, did, just give you a chance to talk about any, any details that are important about this uh, liability prevention briefing you're doing. Well, the point is it's directed to CEOs, business owners, chief financial officers. It's directed to P&L executives, people who run mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. My story is that about 10 years into my career, I accepted a corporate client's invitation to become a business person. They said, we think you can run a division. And so when I changed from the lawyer side of the, of the lawyer client table over to the business side, that completely changed everything that I think about how law helps and hurts. So the whole point of the seminar is it will use and be up to date on all the latest regulations and court decisions and whatever, but it's not a legal lecture. It's for business people because ultimately the prevention efforts have to be led by the business people, not by the lawyers. Well, that's great. It's great that you're doing that. Again, managinglegal.com is where these uh, seminars will be hosted Monday, June 29th, 11 p.m., excuse me, 11 a.m. Central Time, and Tuesday, June 30th, so the end of the month, 2 p.m. Central Time, Monday the 29th, 11 a.m., Tuesday, June 30th, 2 p.m., Joel Weber, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, anecdotes that don't get enough attention to balance out the uh, pandemonium that's being amplified by the press corps. Officer Galen Hinshaw in Louisville, Kentucky. He uh, was in a sea of protesters, blocked off from getting to his vehicle. He was alone. He was worried they were going to turn on him. They could have. It was at that moment a man emerged from the crowd in a red University of Louisville mask covering the lower half of his face. He put himself between the closest protester and Henshaw. Local entrepreneur Darren Lee Jr. spotted Henshaw, the cop, and the advancing crowd and linked arms with the stranger in the red mask who had first stepped up to help the cop. Once I saw the guy in the red mask step up, I said, I got to step up, said Lee, who also runs a child care center. It was just reactive. I just went. I really thought at that moment, protect him. It really isn't his fault. Lee was worried that the... Officer Hinshaw would react and hit him from behind, so he tried to reassure the officer they were going to protect him. He was looking nervous and scared. If he panicked, then there was going to be a war out there. Ultimately, five men formed a human shield to protect Officer Hinshaw, all of them strangers to one another. Nobody knew the name of the man to his left or to the right. They were three black, one white, one Dominican, all linking arms to keep harm away from Hinshaw, himself half Pakistani. A human was in trouble, and right is right, said Ricky McClellan a factory worker for, from Old Louisville who was locked into Lee's left arm. The point here is that you have some people that are engaged in violence on the streets and you have a lot of people who are not. You have some people that are upset about what those Minneapolis police officers did to George Floyd, understandably. Oh, and by the way, since Black Lives Matter and all black people hate cops, that's false. False. It's been this way forever. The majority of black Americans in inner cities, support the cops and want more of them. By more than a two-to-one margin, black Americans support the police. 60% of black Americans want more police hired, according to a Civis poll published by Vox this week. Vox, left wing. Other groups support the police even more strongly than that. It is a small group of people who have an outsized voice because of the small group of people in the D.C. press corps who are ignoramuses. It's not black and white monolith. It's individual Philistines against the rest of people who want to live in a civilized world. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Will Riley, associate professor of poli-sci at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Glad to be back on, Dan. And I know you're a data-driven guy, so you heard me addressing what uh, is one canard, I believe. What is uh, the lie that's being repeated the most often that is the most disturbing to you? So first of all, I want to agree with you. I mean, I found the George Floyd tape disgusting. I actually think you could prove murder charges, nothing less, against at least Chauvin. We're all on the same page against extreme police brutality. And as you said, that's what makes this so odd. The question is, do we need sweeping reforms? Uh, In Minneapolis, they're talking about dismantling the police department. In fact, I think they voted to do it in at least some non-binding way. Nine out of 13 members of the city council currently are backing a total suspension of what we'd consider normal policing. I think that the numbers used to justify that position are probably the biggest untruth in this whole situation. 
So you very frequently hear activists that present under that broad label of Black Lives Matter say things like thousands of black men each year are killed or brutalized by police. Chernobyl went on uh, Fox News, I believe, two years back and said every 28 hours, a black man, I believe he mentioned an unarmed black man, is murdered by the police. That turns out to be flatly untrue. There's a comprehensive database of police killings kept by the Washington Post that you can find just by Googling Washington Post police shootings database. Last year, the total number of unarmed black men killed by police was 15. And that number, for whatever reason, has increased over the past week from nine, which is what they had it listed as for nearly a year. Right. Um, That would be the last year on record, 2019. Total number of unarmed people in general killed by the police was 56. So black people are not even very disproportionate within that group. Only about a thousand police killings nationally in the entire year. Many of those involved someone, for example, attacking an officer. 621 of those people had a gun on them, usually an illegal firearm. Only 229 of those, a little over 20% involved African-Americans at all. So the idea that there's an epidemic of police murders and thus we need to defund or disband the police, that at root is not true. Out of 3 million odd people that unfortunately pass away every year, we see in a typical year perhaps 900 to 1,000 of those people die in encounters with the police. And that's been very consistent for a decade. I mean, there doesn't seem to be bluntly an epidemic problem here at all. And I think the presentation of this as though there is, which the media plays a big role in, is incredibly dishonest. George Floyd is not the norm. George Floyd is one of you know, 9 to 15 guys who had an experience like this in the entire country over 365 days. So punish those officers involved, but the last thing we need is to pull police out of poor and minority communities. When we come back with Kentucky State Professor Will Riley, I'm going to get to uh, what uh, one of the Black Lives Matter co-founders has to say in terms of defining their policy agenda. More with Will Riley when we return. is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with uh, Will Riley, professor of political science at Kentucky State University. And uh, Black Lives Matter co-founder Alicia Garza said regarding policing, this was uh, the Black Lives Matter agenda saying so much of policing right now is generated and directed towards quality of life issues, homelessness, drug addiction, domestic violence. What we need is increased funding for housing. We need increased funding for education. We need increased funding for quality of life communities who are over-policed and over-surveilled. I mean, she sounds like any run-of-the-mill leftist politician. Yeah, I think one of the most important things about this is uh, what was mentioned in the lead-in to my segment here, which is that 60 to 70 percent of the members of every American ethnic group, African-Americans, Italian-Americans, whites, overall Hispanics, like the police and generally want more police in their neighborhoods. So obviously, I mean, I I broadly agree with that analysis. This is something that ties into deeper goals. But one thing we have to remember here is that if you actually pull back the police, the people that suffer are going to be the people that live in poor and minority neighborhoods that want more police. And having some taught some criminal justice courses as well as political science classes, and one very basic point here is that the cops aren't in minority neighborhoods just so they can, quote unquote, screw with black people. The entire model of modern post-Bratton CompStat policing is that you send the most officers where there is the most crime. 
And to deter crime, you do things like pat down potential criminals for minor offenses. You look for weed charges, pistol charges, so on. But that's done in response to a pattern of serious violent crime. And what we see, this is the entire idea of broken windows policing, what we very consistently see is that that tends to reduce major crime. If you find someone with an illegal pistol on his waistband, he can't use that to shoot somebody. So when people say things like the police should be taken entirely off a proactive footing, they shouldn't be allowed to sweep the streets, they shouldn't be allowed to do stop and frisk, clean up homeless encampments, what that's going to do almost certainly is dramatically increase crime. I mean, if you cut the number of cops by half, and you tell them they can't do anything proactive, you're going to see a surge in crime in those neighborhoods that most need policing. Now, one of the things that's taboo here, but kind of obvious, is that, quote unquote, the hood among all races isn't over-policed, it's under-policed, i.e., relative to the amount of crime that you have, you don't have as many officers as you'd expect. So in a neighborhood that has six times the normal crime rate, you might have twice as many cops as the average neighborhood would, but you don't have six times as many. So that creates a tough situation where you have more officers. So there are more violent encounters with officers, but you don't have enough officers to actually keep crime down where it should be. That creates the worst of both worlds. And that's why if you ever go to a town hall in one of these neighborhoods and you ask, what do you guys need? What they say is we need this neighborhood to be treated like any other neighborhood. We need enough cops that there's not crime. We need working fire services, so on. Pulling those services back would be, unimaginably cruel to some extent. I don't know what people think you're going to have in a poor neighborhood. If you have, for example, Antifa fighters or local gang members or social workers or something like that doing a crude imitation of policing, but it won't be good. Uh, Will Hurd, the Republican congressman from Texas, uh, had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and he uh, talked about one of the issues that's brought up routinely as well, which is the getting rid of bad officers. I understand, you know, we understand in a, you know, police forces of 13 to 35,000 officers, you're going to have uh, some bad officers, but it's the problem of them being reinstated. He writes that <clears throat> citing a Washington Post study in the last decade, the nation's departments fired at least 1,881 officers for misconduct, yet 451 were later reinstated, most after arbitration. And he writes that one of the things that they can be done at the federal level is to empower police chiefs to fire bad officers and keep them off the force yeah. permanently. But he doesn't say how. And uh, some are suggesting one of the ways one of the ways how is, OK, um, you know, men and women of the left, let's go after the union uh, that uh, protects uh, uh, officers at all costs. Are you game for that? Yeah, I mean, I can actually explicitly tell you either from that CJ perspective or that legal perspective how you could do that. I mean, you could take what are known as qualified immunity provisions and third chances provisions out of police union contracts. Right. What a lot of people don't seem to understand is that there's a framework of real adult law that governs what we do. Um, I mean, I remember being a young kind of radical kid myself, uh, but at the time I was pretty dumb. And you see this same, this <laughs> same come a kind long of way. passion. <laughs> I'm a grown man now. I mean, uh, me holding my skateboard at 18, I mean, I would have said all kinds of things about policing and so on, but none of them would have been correct. (laughs) I mean, so, but looking at this, I mean, when people say, for example, in the Shalvin case, uh, why didn't they bring charges immediately against all four officers? Well, because you can't. I mean, if you're talking about a probable homicide case, you need to see an OD on record. This is the most basic element of law or of policing. You can't just charge people with felonies. Uh, So that's why there was that two to three day wait there that to some extent led to the rioting and just knowing that would have probably prevented the rioting. 
same thing with these police contracts. When people say, well, why do, why do they give these, these crooked cops desk duty if they shoot somebody? Because there's a two-page provision in every contract that says you have to. No police chief likes doing that. They don't like paying someone who's probably a bad cop that they're going to fire at the end of the two months. But by law, if you sign a bargaining, right. sign a contract with the public sector union, that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, there are real solutions here. Like taking qualified immunity out of union contract is a real solution. But when you say something like taking qualified immunity out of union contracts, that doesn't have, you know, quite the same ring to it as burn, baby, burn. <laughs> so everyone agrees on the actual solutions here. And nobody, I'm, I'm a pro-black black guy, as I often know. I teach at a historically black college. Nobody wants crooked cops out there arresting black men, or for that matter, white or Hispanic men, by the way. But how do you stop that? Well, you have to sit down with the police unions and perhaps trade slightly higher salaries for a loss of qualified immunity. I mean, just kicking in the windows of a jewelry store isn't going to change how policing is done. It's probably going to get you arrested. He is Will Riley, associate professor of poli-sci at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Like you, I've been spending a lot more time consuming live streamed content. And one thing that uh, I enjoy right now is watching movies that affirms my faith uh, uh, with all the choices. There's uh, much to watch. A lot of it's not so good. Uh, I've got an idea for you for for something that is good. Patterns of Evidence, the Red Sea Miracle. Uh, The Patterns of Evidence series answers the question, did the stories as written in the Bible really happen? Talked previously about the Exodus. Now let me tell you about the Red Sea Miracle and this latest installment from the Patterns of Evidence series. This is the uh, documentary series that follows investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney's faith-affirming journey in search of evidence for one of the Bible's most epic miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. The results of his, his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, the Red Sea Miracle, at home, along with other movies in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. The more you listen... The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I just find it comical what the uh, coverage looked like of Mitt Romney and uh, Colin Powell in particular this weekend. The uh, headlines over the weekend and into today about uh, Romney not supporting Trump and Powell is going to vote for Joe Biden. Oh, 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 you mean the Colin Powell who uh, voted for Hillary Clinton in 16, voted for <laughs> voted for Donald Trump? I mean, excuse me, voted for uh, Barack Obama twice before voting against Donald Trump by supporting Hillary Clinton in 16. That Powell? Uh, Why is this uh, interview he gave to Jake Tapper groundbreaking when he says what he said? And the one word I have to use with respect to his buddy he's been doing for the last several years is a word I would never have used before. I never would have used with any of the four presidents I've worked for. He lies. He lies about things. And he gets away with it because people would not hold him accountable. I couldn't vote for him in 96, and I certainly cannot in any way support President Trump this year. Maybe that 96 reference when he met 2016 was uh, a hat tip to Joe Biden, who can't remember exactly what century it is either. Uh, but uh, I mean, the whole, you know, if the four presidents I served under were all uh, you know, purveyors of uh, absolute truth, hardly, 
Hardly. And I'm not trying to bring down the standard and I'm not running interference for Trump. This is more just a criticism of the political hackery that uh, uh, that even military brass is susceptible to, if not their stock and trade. I mean, let's remember, Colin Powell started out as uh, John Poindexter's bag man in Iran-Contra. Just a just a note. And then uh, Mitt Romney. Way to end violence and brutality, and to make sure that people understand that Black Lives Matter. Yeah. That's nice. He was uh, in a Black Lives Matter march uh, with uh, other Christians, and he's got his mask on, and so on and so forth. Mitt Romney's an empty vessel. Again, this is not running interference for Trump. This is the, these, these are the people who were repudiated in 2016. A vote for Trump was a vote against these sort of elitists. Mitt Romney, a good example of this, the lead with an apology for who he is and what he's accomplished. And then it's constant pander. He is going wherever the zeitgeist is. Remember, this is the Mitt Romney who gave us Obamacare before there was Obamacare. This is the Mitt Romney. He's pro-choice. He's pro-life. Moves around depending on what state he's in, depending on what office he's running for. So you'll just... uh, Forgive me if I am not uh, so deeply concerned, as I'm sure the cable news networks are, CNN, MSNBC, you know, very deeply concerned about uh, Mitt Romney and Colin Powell breaking ranks from Trump world, a world they were never in, a world that repudiated them as the means to the 2016 victory. I mean, come on. It's just a really silliness, and it's... Uh, a perfect setup for uh, our discussion coming up at the top of the next hour with Mark Hemingway from RealClearInvestigations.com. More on the media then. This is Dan Proft. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com for podcasts of the program and uh, on social media at Dan Proft Show as well, Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of the media, Bill Barr and what happened a week ago at Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., was dominating the Sunday talk shows this past weekend, despite the fact that you had hundreds of thousands of people around the country protesting over the wide span of things that we've discussed on this show. Sort of remarkable, the dogged commitment to relitigate that Lafayette Square issue of protesters being dispersed and having to enlist the attorney general to go on Face the Nation, as he did with uh, Margaret Brennan, and try to set the record straight. Here's what the media is missing. This was not an operation to respond to that particular crowd. It was an operation to move the perimeter one block. And the methods they used, you think, were appropriate? Is when that what they you're met saying? resistance, yes. They announced three times they didn't move. By the way, there was no tear gas used. The tear gas was used Sunday when they had to clear 8th Street to allow the fire department to come in to save St. John's Church. That's when tear gas was used. There were chemical irritants, the part. No, there were not chemical irritants. Pepper spray is not a chemical irritant. It's not chemical. Pepper spray, you're saying, is what was used. Pepper balls. Right. 
and you believe that was appropriate. I mean, just in Chicago that same weekend, they're talking about people being dispersed from Lafayette Park. Uh, and it was, according to Barr, the Park Service making some of the calls uh, independent of him. That same weekend, Chicago, 18 murders in 24 hours. It was the most violent day in Chicago in 60 years. And so many other important stories. But this one is getting the play and continues to because building off of the narrative of what happened in Lafayette Square, you have four-star generals intercede and say we are in a constitutional crisis in the republic because of President Trump saber-rattling over dispatching the military, even though that's now also by the boards with Trump announcing he's withdrawing National Guard from D.C. because things have calmed down. Boy, it, it is a struggle to get to some sense and something that uh, represents what's actually happening in so many of these circumstances. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Mark Hemingway, senior writer at RealClearInvestigations.com. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So that this whole Lafayette Park matter and uh, layering in the, the military brass now and with uh, Admiral Stavridis comparing America to a banana republic under Trump, it, it just feeds this. But if Barr's version of events is accurate, it really is without merit, whatever you think about his photo op outside St. John's. Yeah, I mean, I always found that to be a strange argument myself, that the protests in front of the White House were peaceful. I mean, you know, from the beginning, the park police made it clear that they were being harassed by people in the crowd. Obviously, crowd dynamics are very volatile, and it doesn't take many people in a crowd that appears to be peaceful, depending on the situation, to, like, turn a peaceful crowd into one that is not, if you don't get it under control. You know, further, there had been, you know, quite pitched rioting in that park like the evening before. So it was understandable if the park police weren't exactly trusting that the crowd would remain peaceful if, you know, elements on the fringe were starting to attack the police. A couple of years ago in New York Magazine, Andrew Sullivan wrote this piece saying that we are all on a college campus now. We all live on a college campus now. And I remarked at the time that he was spot on and would be prescient. We were both right. And a lot of other people were as well who were observing the same things. And Andrew Sullivan was so right. He's one of the victims, it would appear. Uh, New York Magazine not allowing him to write about the riots. My column won't be appearing this week, he tweeted, without explanation. But some others suggested the context of that. So there's Andrew Sullivan. Uh, New York Times uh, opinion editor James Bennett resigns after having published the Tom Cotton editorial last year on dispatching the military. In uh, Philadelphia, Stan Wisnowski, top editor of Philadelphia Inquirer, announced his resignation after discontent among staff over a headline on a column about the impact of civil unrest following the George Floyd killing. And uh, in Chicago, a second city owner, founder, icon, Andrew Alexander, to exit after accusations of institutionalized racism leveled at second city. It turns out the rioters are not just in the streets. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> We've kind of been seeing this for a while, but to, but it, it's really reached a fever pitch. It used to be campus was just a metaphor for what's going on right now, you know. But two weeks ago, if you'd ask, you know, what American institution was most intolerant of dissenting opinion, promoting radical ideology, and prone to erupting into disruptive temper tantrums, the answer would have been easy. Now it's not so clear. I mean, the campus hysteria has spread to America's newsrooms in a way that is incredibly tangible. I mean, after Bennett resigned effectively for the crime of publishing an op-ed that the Times staff disagreed with, never mind that polling showed that half of America agreed with Tom's position, including nearly four in ten African 
Americans. And the crazy thing is that the Times isn't even like pretending that this is anything other than enforcing a political orthodoxy. I mean, this is not about making sure they have high editorial standards at all. Much like campuses, the Times is now on record saying their staff are to be treated like young students who must be coddled and protected from ideas they don't like. Katie Kingsbury, who is the new editorial page editor following Bennett's resignation, sent a note to the staff saying, anyone who sees a piece of opinion journalism, headlines, social posts, photos, you name it, that gives you the slightest pause, please call or text me immediately. Uh She's effectively giving every employee at the Times veto power over what runs on the opinion page. That is not a recipe for supporting the kind of raucous debates that democracies need to function. Well, yeah, to say the least. And and um, to your point, too, the response initially before Bennett's resignation that after the brouhaha over Tom Cotton's editorial, we're going to be publishing fewer editorials. <laughs> That's the response. We, right. we, we we need to we need to you know uh, close ranks and have fewer voices. That's the purpose of a, of an outlet of the gray lady, much as any outlet uh, that uh, pretends to be part of the fourth estate. And not only that, they're not changing anything about the paper, if anything, if, you know, in, or in, in any way that, you know, supposedly makes the process more rigorous, as far as anyone can tell. The Times said their problem with the cotton op-ed, they had fact-checking problems with the cotton op-ed. And if you read the note, the lengthy editor's note that they appended to the op-ed, which is almost half as long as the op-ed itself, it's strictly argumentative, and they don't mention any factual problems with the op-ed whatsoever. There don't appear to be any. They denounced the op-ed for being needlessly harsh. Two years ago, the New York Times published an assassination fantasy of Donald Trump. In February, they published an op-ed by the Taliban that still has no editor's note attached to it. And yet on Friday, a column the New York Times published a column calling Tom Cotton a fascist in the headline. On Saturday, the New York Times published an op-ed urging people to send a text all their family members saying that if you don't give money to my preferred political causes and get out on the streets protesting in the middle of a pandemic, I'm not going to talk to you or I'm not ever going to visit you. Clearly, the Times has no editorial standards like whatsoever. The standard is if you publish something that, you know, agrees with their progressive liberal orthodoxy, they're okay with that. And if you don't publish something that agrees with that, they're not okay with that. That's, and, that's really all it is. And, and I mean, and it's one thing in an area where you have, you know, a diversity of outlets in the digital age. Thank goodness for the digital age. But also uh, when everything is politicized, which is where we're at now, where everything is a means to politics, including science. And so you have this curious case of of the arguments being made, including by medical professionals, that uh, since white supremacy contr- predates and contributes to COVID-19, it's OK for the protesters not to social distance. We're not worried about that, even if uh, we are worried about people, say, rallying for reopening from lockdowns uh, are uh, not social distancing. That's a problem. The, the, the latter is a problem. The former is not. When it comes to uh, black lives uh, or excuse me, um, a new Black Panthers, uh, females carrying a sport rifle and the, the Atlanta protest on the street peacefully. So fine. I'm fine with it. Um, that's not a problem. Uh, when it's guys in Michigan at a reopen rally, that's a problem. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. We are seeing this, you know, increased desire for politicization at institutions sort of across the board in this country. And people that think that this isn't going to have any effects on, um, on, on on what's going on 
are in for, you know, a big surprise. I mean, there's a real legitimacy crisis in this country. And, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's bad enough in journalism, but to see this happen in the public health profession is just kind of terrifying because that's an actual profession where the, these things are, are you know, where legitimacy really, really matters, okay? The fact that they have completely reversed themselves on the virus um, is just terrifying to me. What if another pandemic that's more serious comes along? I mean, how are you going to tell people to vaccinate their kids if you have no credibility because you just, you know, throw out, you know, your science out the window the moment that it comes to supporting a political cause that you agree with? Um, I mean, this is going to be a serious, serious problem. He is Mark Hemingway, senior writer, RealClearInvestigations.com. Mark, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I hope you caught uh, Shelby Steele over the weekend on Brett Baer's program. Shelby Steele, uh, the author of uh, great books, must read, including White Guilt, but not limited to White Guilt, his most recent offering, Shame. He wrote uh, back in uh, March of 2017, White Guilt gave us a mock politics based on the pretense of moral authority. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of excerpts that should be emblazoned upon your memories. And I'm going to give you a real-world example of this from uh, suburban Chicago momentarily. White guilt is not actual guilt. Surely most whites are not assailed in the night by feelings of responsibility for America's historical mistreatment of minorities. It's not actual guilt. Because what is American liberalism? Steel, American liberalism never acknowledged that it was about white esteem rather than minority accomplishment. Let that uh, wash over you, penetrate. American liberalism, the leftism that you're about to hear and that you see all around you, because these are the individuals in control of all the civic institutions in American society, never acknowledged, Steele's words, that it was about white esteem rather than minority accomplishment. Thus, the Charles Murray formulation of those white liberals not preaching what they practice. Steele goes on, 4,000 shootings in Chicago last year, so that would have been 2016, and the mayor announces that his will be a sanctuary city. That would have been Rahm Emanuel. This is moral esteem over reality, the self-congratulation of idealism. Liberalism is exhausted because it has become a corruption. Uh, an example of the corruption, New Trier High School in one of the richest areas in Illinois and really the country. This is uh, the North Shore of Chicago, brought you uh, such uh, graduates as Charlton Heston and, uh, and Steve Moore, our friend Steve Moore. Um, boy, Charlton Heston and Steve Moore, those two names never appear in the same the same sentence and never should. But anyway, and I say that with all good humor. Uh New Trier High School. This is the message, video message, that the superintendent of New Trier 
this uh, Josh Frey Fry impersonator named Paul Sally and the principal of one of the high school's campuses. This is what they emailed out to parents. Uh, this is a school district that's about 90% white, very wealthy, about 1% African-American, less, actually. And uh, this is uh, Paul Sally and uh, his colleague living down to what Shelby Steele was describing. Hi, this is Paul Sally, superintendent of New Trier and Denise Dubrovic, Winneka campus principal, with a message for our students. As we come to the end of the school year, we are both sad and hopeful. It was a difficult year as we all faced fear and a loss of connection amid a global pandemic. But that's not the main reason why we're sad. We're sad because of the fear, injustice, and racism that our students and staff of color, along with their families, experience every day just trying to go about their daily lives. Events across the country have exposed these injustices, and I know that they happen everywhere, including our school and community. Many of you have shared your pain and anger at experiences you have had at Nutria, and I want you to know, we hear you, we want to do better, and we will do better. Right now, there's a video circulating of a student saying the N-word as another student recorded the slur. Both were in middle school at the time, several years ago. We became aware of the video after receiving an email from a concerned student and have since received many more emails and reports to the Trevian tip line, some of which have inaccurate information. The behavior in the video is unacceptable and hurtful, and we are working with the students and families involved. The students and their families want the new true community to know that they deeply regret and apologize for the hurt the video has caused the community and our students, families, and staff of color. They want to partner with us, the school, to move our equity efforts forward. We also know that our black students and students in other marginalized groups hear slurs and experience racism regularly in this community and in our school. And most of those incidents are not caught on tape. We as a community must be agents of change. We believe that the best way to affect anti-racist change is through calling in rather than calling out. We believe that we must be both accountable for our actions and compassionate with ourselves and others. When we say or do something that hurts others, we must take responsibility for that action and also have an opportunity to learn and grow from that experience. What a wonderful refrigerator magnet at the end. But if you listened closely to sad Paul Sally, what was sort of adult male? I'm sad. Listen closely to what they said. They said, you all in Nutrier High School District, all you Nutrier families, all you white Nutrier families, you're all racists. <laughs> That's what they said. Happens every day. Our students and staff of color face this every day, whatever this is. This is, a uh, again, one of the wealthiest areas in the country. Uh, champagne socialist sentimental barbarians overran the place a couple of decades ago. And so this is what you get in terms of your school leadership. You're all racists. And we have a anonymous tip line. Stasi style. Where you can call in tips about high school students and what they may or may not have done, what they may or may not have said as grade school students, and then we'll investigate them, bring in the family, and uh, make them you know, do the walk of atonement. You don't think this is coming for you? 
again, you don't think that um, that we all live on a college campus now and uh, the dynamics are the same? I mean, it's a remarkable approach to some very powerful people. What kind of people would sit back and let school officials talk to them like this? Sentimental barbarians, that's the type of people. Those purging themselves because of their guilt, not to the betterment of minorities, not to end racism for their own self-esteem. Oh, and for those who disagree, don't share the takeaway. Paul Sally has a message. We know we have a lot of work to continue to do. I know our community will pull together as it always does to make positive change toward eliminating injustice in our school. We are aware that sending this message to you will elicit different reactions. This is especially true when social media is involved. Some will agree with this statement and view it as a positive step. Unfortunately, there may be some others that view this as an opportunity to offer hurtful comments that run counter to our commitment to equity. And unfortunately, that is part of the state of our national conversation regarding issues of racial equity, uh, especially on social media. See, you can't disagree with Paul Sally. Otherwise, you're hurtful. That's violence. That's and that makes him sad. Remarkable, isn't it? Oh, by the way, follow this logic. All you racists are going to help us make positive change. Right after the reeducation. Coming to a school, dear, a school district a corporate boardroom, a college campus, if it's not already there, a lot of religious institutions, every newsroom, every entertainment venue, art venue, near you. This is Dan Prof. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Since uh, some seem to believe uh, by any means necessary is the order of the day when it comes to uh, police reform and other grievances that people have against uh, government at every level, starting with police. Uh, I just thought I'd uh, reference uh, an observation from Malcolm X, quoting Malcolm X here. The worst enemy that the Negro has is this white man that runs around here drooling at the mouth, professing to love Negroes and calling himself a liberal. And it is following these white liberals that has perpetuated problems that Negroes have. If the Negro wasn't taken, tricked or deceived by the white liberal, the Negroes would get together and solve their own problems. I only cite these things to show you that in America, the history of the white liberal has been nothing but a series of trickery designed to make Negroes think that the white liberal was going to solve our problems. Our problems will never be solved by the white man. For more on all of that, we're pleased to be joined again by Maj Ture, political activist and rapper, as well as founder of Black Guns Matter and former candidate for Philadelphia City Council. Maj, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. What's up, Dan? How are you? I appreciate you for having me. Yeah. So um, what about, uh, you know, for all of those invoking Malcolm X or his philosophy on the streets right now, what about uh, his observation about the uh, the, the, the guilt-ridden white liberal? 
Um, the, so he's spot on. That's number one. First of all, let me say this. To all of my white patriots, well, the patriots ain't doing it as liberals. That like kneeling and washing somebody else's feet. First of all, if you want to come give me a, a pedicure, that's great. <laughs> I'll, I'll appreciate that tremendously. Yeah, you know sure. I'm just telling you guys, you should stop doing that. Like you, like you, like. I'll pass the word mean, at our club meeting. Yeah, okay. Right, right. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Does systemic racism exist? Redlining, horrible education systems. Uh, yes. However, and I'm not going to pretend like there has not been. Uh, democratically ran, for the most part, white liberal agendas. There has been. The fact that that Malcolm X quote rings so true 50, 60 years later speaks to that. However, there is a difference between recognizing what a problem is and attempting to solve it, regardless of your melanin content, yep. and living into the subservient, like, I got to kneel, I got to, that's, that's, that's not my thing. You know, at all. So, you know, I'm giving you guys permission to get off your knees. Like, that's not what pause. That's not what any um, self-righteous, not even self-righteous, but any righteous American, you know, you, you deal with things that are that are right, and you be, you're honest about the stain of racism that we have in our, on our American flag, but you don't do that by kowtowing to anyone. I'm like, you got to, you know, I'm like Leonidas from 300. I, I'm just going to have a problem with this whole kneeling thing, so... Um, but I think Malcolm X was spot on, and Malcolm X is like a spiritual father to me, especially uh, post-Mecca Malcolm, when he, he kept evolving and kept evolving. And so um, I think that that's, that's key. Um, I think also, if we look at it from that perspective, you know, when we're talking about defunding the police and things like that, we're looking at it from a conservative or liberty standpoint. We've allowed the government and uh, foot soldiers for you know, law enforcement are the police. We've allowed too much government overreach. So cutting back on that and trimming some of that fat, I'm okay with. But now what happens is if you're that same liberal that has been telling people about, you know, gun control and you shouldn't have guns and so forth and so on, it might be a bad day for you. It might, be, it might get goofy for you. I'm cool with that if we're telling people to be armed and responsible and follow, you know, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Those things kind of have to go hand in hand. I think we've, we've allowed and depended on and allowed the police state to grow too much. And I think that we call the police for too many things. I think that we could put some of that money, you know, in our communities. We can put some of that money in our education system. If, and I think even that education system, we're too reliant on that for our youth. So all of these things, I know you asked me one question about Malcolm, but my, Malcolm in regards to white liberals, which have proven to be that all of those democratic policies are white liberals that have been horrible for the black community. Malcolm was right there. And he was also right about being armed and you can't just isolate and say, Hey, I'm going to be defunding the police and do that for self. But you got to look at all of these things in a do for self scenario, just like any other group or any red blooded American should be thinking about. Uh, when we come back with Maj Shere, I want to pick up on uh, this conversation, talk a little bit spe uh, more specifically about Philadelphia and what's happening on the ground there from his perspective, as well as delve into that defund the police movement that Minneapolis is sparking. More with Maj Shere, political activist, rapper, founder of Black Guns Matter, right after this. See me. 
call all the shots, rip all the spots, rock all the rocks, cop all the shots. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Maj Ture, political activist and rapper, founder of Black Guns Matter. And before the break, Maj, we were talking about uh, you were talking about the uh, defund police movement a bit. And so and you're talking about, uh, you know, the police has too too big a footprint. We ask the police to do too many things. So it goes in a couple of different directions in terms of the the structural problems you see. So um, our, our solutions to completely reimagine the police as is being advocated in places like Minneapolis, or is it to, um, you know, look at specific things with respect to how bad cops are treated and relieved of their duty, uh, specific law enforcement techniques that need to be prohibited. Uh, obviously like, uh, the knee to the neck that we saw with George Floyd would be an example. What's your perspective? I think it's all of the above. I think that it, you know, just it's just like um, it's just like it's just like buying a gun, right? When you buy a gun, it's very uh, that that process is very personal. It's it's relative to the person, the hands, your fingers, all of that. Each individual community, you know, when we start looking at politics as local, as we should, each community has a different set of scenarios. So it can't be a the things that. Um, are, are applicable for the Midwest places where there's very few people. You know, it's more rural, it's more spread out. They, those guys already have sheriffs, and ironically, they don't have as much police brutality and things of that nature, right, or government overreach in general, for the most part. Um, with that being the case, it's the same thing with the coronavirus. And people are like, oh, my God, everybody's dying. Well, there's more cases of that, legit cases, not the stat padding, but there's more legit cases of that in areas where there's a denser population, you know, the, in the areas where in hospitals where there is not the same amount of people and they already were, their life is social distancing because their closest neighbor is a mile away. You don't have to apply the same thing. So this is very custom. So one, on the individual level, yes, I, on a smaller scale, I do think that there needs to be conflict resolution in regards to training, in regards to law enforcement officers. On top of that, on top of that, I would love to see, just like we do with our public schools, hey, if you live in this zip code, you can only go to this school. This is what we tell our children. And I'm not saying that I'm, 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 not with, I'm more in alignment with school choice. But my point here is if you take a uh, job as a police officer, you should have to police the neighborhood that you actually know, the one that you live in. Um, the reason for that is, one, you know who's doing the right thing, who's doing the wrong thing. Then we can get back to a community policing conversation on top of, why can't we look into some sort of privatized police? On top of, why can't we the, – the unions, the police and fraternal unions are horrible. Now, at, that comes with a, you know, a two-edged sword because you have the conversation about, okay, well, what about places and unions which traditionally were fighting to maintain a certain living wage, so forth and so on. Um, so I know that that could be a double-edged sword, as most things are, because most things have layers and gradations. So I think that it's all of these things. It doesn't have to just be – you know, oh, as soon as the police officer does something wrong, um, you know, he's got to get suspended and without pay and so forth and so on. Okay, well, what if he was actually chasing a person that actually did a crime with a victim? What if he's getting shot at? You know, what if she's getting shot at from the guy that's running away, the guy that just got caught raping or robbing someone? 
So there's gradations to that. And I think that the, uh, the, the immunity thing, that definitely needs to go. So there's certain things across the board that need to go. What I would recommend in regards to the more, uh, uh, what's, what's the better word, the more um, extreme end of police brutality up into death, I think that all police officers around the nation should be held to the standard when it comes to death, should be held to the standard that every other citizen is that, let's say, carries a license to carry a CCW holder, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you fear for your life does not mean you were justified in killing someone. If I as a reasonable fear, holder, yeah, reasonable yeah. fear, right. right, right, and and responding with proportional force, absolutely, right, yes, right, and so. I think that we give police officers too much leeway in that regard. Well, I think that that's a fair position to have. Let, of, let, hey. let me ask you. Let me ask you this though, Maj, too. Just, just sort of globally, um, when you hear uh, people, and I, I, I've gone over a lot of the, these this data too over the last couple of weeks. You know, data on police and police-involved shootings and police-involved brutality that suggests, uh, I mean, overwhelmingly suggests that it's. Uh, a fairly rare incident with respect to the 800,000 police in this country mm-hmm. to provide yeah. some context to this, that, you know, the George Floyd is the outlier. It is not the normal yeah. course of police business. Uh, how, how do you hear that? Do you hear that as like a, a, a rationalization or a cop out? Can you hold a position that what happened to George Floyd was wrong and those officers should be prosecuted, but also let's recognize this is a very rare circumstance and, and even other incidents that high profile names we remember Walter Scott and others, those were terrible yeah. incidents too. Police were prosecuted, as they are being here. So the justice system actually worked, and we and it's terrible, but it's a rare instance. So I think that in proportion to the amount of police officers there are, the number it is rare. When you factor in other things like how many of those officers are even charged, and more or less, uh, more even so, uh, convicted. When we're talking about scenarios where, again, if we went by the standard of what a, a law, like a, a, law, a law-abiding, concealed carry weapons holder, license to carry person, is maintained by, you have to prove that your life was in imminent danger when you escalate the level of force to death, right? So, it is rare based on numbers, and then it's more, it, it, it gets a little less rare when we get outside of the oh, it, when it happens to black dudes or black women. When we take it back into a conversation that I feel like our white brothers and sisters should be getting more up in arms about, no pun intended, uh-huh. the fact that white males are beaten, brutalized, and shot by law enforcement officers more than anybody else. Now, you could say, well, there's more white people in America based on census data, right? You could say that. But the reality is, now let's look at the convictions. Again, I go back to the COVID example. Okay, you, we thought COVID was going to be horrible, and I'm only using this to put, draw some sort of a, re, a reference. We thought it was going to be horrible based on models and predictions. Now we have actual data. We thought two, mil, 2 million people may die. Now, based on American population numbers, 0.02 people have been affected by COVID or died, right? And that's including the clear-cut stat pattern. So the, the rarity of it doesn't – if my cousin is one of those one – 0.02 people that died from COVID is super impactful to me. So these things are relative now. Maj, 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 let's let's hold it right there because I want to come back sure. and I want to get uh, I want to get your handle on Philadelphia too for our listeners. So more with Maj Ture. He's the founder of Black Guns Matter. He's a political activist and rapper as well. We'll be right back. Now you're giving me, giving me 
the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Maj Ture, political activist and rapper, founder of Black Guns Matter. And Maj, before the break, you were you were finishing up a point just in terms of the the the, the rare instance of something like a George Floyd happening, but why it's so impactful. So I just want to let you complete your thought. Yeah, the rarity of it in the numbers is real. No different than like I was saying before the break, the COVID scenarios. The people that are affected by the actual death, people that died from actually COVID or Corona, right? That is still impactful to them. When you look at, um, did we do enough to save those lives? You know, we have to ask that question. No different than when we're talking about uh, police officers killing unarmed Americans of any ethnicity or background. We have to look at that from a conversation of, can we, could we be doing more to save lives or bring justice to the people that killed Americans. Maj, so, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, I appreciate that, but before we let, let you go, I wanted to get you on Philly. I know there was some oh, yeah. significant violence uh, last yeah. week, uh, just as there was in Chicago, but to give us a handle on what's happening on the ground in Philadelphia and what you're doing. It's, it's warming up a bit now, so less people are focused on it. There was a huge uh, march. Usually people march and they get it out of their system, um, unfortunately, and very few times there's follow-through going after that. Um, the National Guard has, has left a lot. Um, you're, you're seeing it die down. Ironically, the areas that traditionally were, are identified as racist, like Fishtown, where our bookstore is, there were very few uh, you know, vandalizations in that area because there were guys walking around with bats, checking rioters and looters with no deaths. You know? So I think that part is good. Um, we, we lost a lot of few uh, uh, police officer vehicles and things of that nature. A few statues, Rizzo, who's like a, who was a super racist, so I'm not really mad at that statue getting knocked down. However, um, for the most part, um, it's, it's kind of cool here. Now, it's warm. People been cooped up for a minute. They had their release. They had their, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the killers or the, the guys that were involved in killing George Floyd have now been charged. Um, justice, I think, the, with the nation looking at it, I think it'll get a clear, a, a fair trial. But for the most part, Philadelphia, uh, you know, Independence Hall is still standing. You know, the Liberty Bell still floating. The Rocky statue's good. good <laughs> as long as the Rocky statue is good, that's that's key. <laughs> right. uh, Maj, right. Maj Ture, political activist and rapper, founder of Black Guns Matter. And for more information about Black Guns Matter, uh, where do they go, Maj? Give us the details. So if, if anybody wants to connect, set up some classes in your city, you can follow me on any social media platform, Maj Ture, M-A-J. T-O-U-R-E. And if you agree with some of the things that we discussed today, we could always use your donations. The classes are free conda to beginners, but they cost money. We are, you know, everywhere is a, we're a capitalist nation. So if you want to donate, gofundme.com forward slash Black Guns Matter. And the classes are training people how to properly use a weapon safely and defend themselves and so forth. Absolutely. You got. You can't have a calm and conflict resolution in political education. We can't have a conversation about being armed until we have a conversation about safe and responsible gun ownership. And we, I can't give you a gun and then make you continue to be ignorant so you're voting in the same leftist policies that have not helped our freedoms in this great nation. He is Maj Ture, political activist and rapper, founder of Black Guns Matter. Maj, great having you. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. I'll talk to you in a bit. Take care. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We uh, played this clip earlier in the program when we were talking to attorney Joel Weber, but it uh, it bears hearing again. This uh, from... Uh, Mad Money, Jim Cramer. I know it's investotainment, but it doesn't mean he is incapable of making a salient point. He makes one here recently about uh, the V-shaped recovery. I'm talking about in the market, not the larger economy. Small business, the ones that aren't publicly traded, they're dropping like flies after a government-mandated shutdown because they're non-essential. And the people who work there are non-essential. It's hard enough to run a small business. How about when the government says you, you're closed and the landlord says... I don't care. That's the thing about this pandemic. It's been one of the greatest wealth transfers in history. And it's a wealth transfer that was mandated by the state. I think that we'll have a, it'll have a horrible effect on our country. For more on this, please be joined again by Bill Cohen, former senior Wall Street M&A investment banker, author of Why Wall Street Matters and special correspondent at Vanity Fair. Bill, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So May over May, to Jim Cramer's point, May over May, May 20 to uh, over May 19, U.S. business bankruptcies rose 48 percent, some big retailers, but uh, a lot of Chapter 11 filings of the small business guys he's talking about that uh, are not publicly traded. Yes, he's right. If you can't access the capital markets, if you can't get loans from a bank, if you can't raise debt or equity in the public markets like big companies can, thanks to the Fed. Let's make sure people understand that if the Fed had not intervened in such a big way as it did on March 23rd and again on April 9th, that even the big companies would not be able to access the capital markets. But it did, and they can, and they've been accessing like crazy since then. But as Jim Cramer correctly points out, that leaves a whole lot of small and medium-sized businesses who literally have nowhere else to turn, and that's why they are in large part filing for bankruptcy. And uh, the payroll protection program, I mean, that helps, and some $500 billion has been distributed. But but again, if all you're doing is covering my overhead for an extended period of time, and really you're talking about extended period being you know two to three months, still, I'm not making any money. This is how I live, and so i got to figure something else out with the prospect that uh, the PPP money is going to run out in the not-too-distant future. I mean, absolutely true. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a restaurant, you can perhaps figure out all the paperwork and get approved, cover your payroll for a couple of months, but you know, that does not bring people into the restaurant. That does not produce profits. That does not imp- uh, produce an ongoing business. And so, you're, you know, in a restaurant profit margins are small anyway, and the margin for error is so tiny that this is more than enough to send restaurants and businesses like that into bankruptcy. So again, I don't know that it's been the biggest wealth transfer in history, but it has been a huge bonanza for companies that can access the capital markets and pretty much of a disaster for those that can't. You know, there's some good news, of course, uh, the jobs report that came out on Friday that was uh, shocking, I think, to just about everyone in terms of a couple of million jobs gained rather than seven to nine million jobs lost. So maybe the recovery won't be as torturous as initially anticipated. 
but it seems to me there's still a real concern uh, in particularly in the um, hospitality sector lower wage workers 40% of the unemployed less than $40,000 a year that you could have a real jobless recovery for certain sectors of the economy that persist for some time and it's those again on the lower end that have the most exposure and the least margin absolutely correct you know even with friday's surprise in the jobs report which frankly is still kind of a mystery to a lot of people and still being sorted out but even if take it as a fact that 2 million workers who had been furloughed were brought back in May. That still leaves about 40 million people unemployed at the lower end of the wage scale, those that are on the front lines, those that can't work from home, who can't work, either don't have or can't work with an internet connection. Bankers will be fine. You know, they can work from home, which, good, you know, is important. You know, Amazon can still do its thing. Apple can do its thing. But small and medium-sized businesses, manufacturing businesses where people can't be working next to each other, It's just going to get increasingly ugly till, frankly, people feel safe enough to go back to work, which means until probably there's a vaccine of some sort. Just going back to what uh, Kramer said, too, I mean, he's right to say the market and the larger economy, particularly with respect to those most impacted we're discussing, those are two very different things. Yeah, I mean, everybody likes to say that the stock market is not the economy, but there actually is a correlation between the two. I mean, sure. uh, and, yes. you know, I, I don't want to say that they're completely un- unrelated. Obviously, the market is very much a function of corporate earnings, and some corporations are doing quite well, and mostly they're those technology corporations, uh, which is why, which make up uh the Dow in part and make up the NASDAQ in large part. And so that's why those indices are doing well. But so is the S&P 500. I mean, I think you really have to ask yourself, where else can you do with your money at this point with the Fed driving interest rates to zero and even longer term interest rates have now virtually recovered from what the huge spike up that occurred in March. I mean, you know, what what else can you do with your money and expect to return? I mean, this is quantitative easing on steroids. Well, sure. Uh, yeah. Seven trillion dollars worth. Right. I mean, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's something. And and also Jerome Powell saying, Fed chairman saying, hey, uh, I got uh, more tricks up my sleeve. Yeah. Maybe I'll start buying equities. Yeah. Here, wh- you know, I mean, whatever's required. So, I mean, and, and, and look, I don't want to be hypocritical about this as a guy in the market. I'm I'm happy. I know that a lot of people have pensions uh, that are tied exactly. to. Yeah. So so it's not like it's just the big guys. And I don't want to mistake that. Right. And and one of the things we found out from this whole saga is just how interconnected things are and maybe a way that we didn't appreciate prior to the lockdowns and to the. Pandemic. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been I've been writing about how interconnected things are for close to 20 years now. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole. Don't forget, in 2008, we all learned about how interconnected everything is. So, yes, let's, we, I think we can officially stipulate that everything is interconnected. And, but, you know, I don't blame Powell or the Fed. I mean, they had to do what they did. And, you know, they know they physically, you know, they just know that they can't help everybody, but they've helped an awful lot of people. Uh, and it's up to Congress now to try to help the rest. And that's what the $2 trillion stimulus uh, was about. And, you know, whether it's enough or not, it remains to be seen. It's probably not enough. And there needs to be more. And if they can never get their act together to provide more. That would be a, a nice thing. But who, who benefits from what the Fed can do? Again, it's how we started this conversation. It's the big corporations that can access the capital markets. It's 
people who make money from money, like hedge funders and speculators and people who can put, you know, SPACs together and people who can, you know, are big shareholders like Carl Icahn and can force Herbalife to do a, a, a junk bond and use that proceeds to buy back his stock. I mean, you know, it's financial engineers that really go to town at a time like this. Right, right. And you had a good piece about Icon and uh, Vanity Fair uh, detailing just exactly what he did to get his net worth back up around $20 billion where he's comfortable. Yeah, um, exactly. So uh, it just on the um, on the matter of, um, of, of the recovery, just thinking about um, uh, what you were talking about with respect to uh, the, the Fed, how do you see this playing out in terms of a sector or maybe two that you say, if I see some recovery there, then I'm going to be more sanguine than if I don't. I mean, I, I say this against the backdrop of BP announcing 10,000 people being laid off today and energy sector being a driver of both employment and, and economic growth over the last decade. I mean, I'm starting to read stories. I don't know whether they're true about you know the shale uh, sector beginning to um, uh, create um, products again. Uh, that's a sector that's absolutely uh, – uh, on on its on its uh, hind legs, uh, you know, if somehow uh, you know restaurants can get back up and operating, if, if if Macy's and and you know even Neiman Marcus, which went into bankruptcy but can still operate, you know, if some of these retail uh, purveyors can get back up and running, if the airlines uh, can start, uh, not only you know they have full planes because they're not running any routes, if they begin running a bigger schedule of routes and begin filling those planes. If the hospitality industry, you know, gets people to stay in hotels and people start traveling more, well, then, okay. I mean, again, but none of that's going to happen until people feel really safe. And do people feel really safe uh, now? We seem to be in a phase where we're kind of ignoring the virus uh, in favor of other things, which, you know, maybe yeah. people are willing to make that trade-off. Yeah. Uh, but until there's a way people feel safe with a vaccine or a therapy uh, that uh, mitigates the problems of the virus. I don't see that happening. He is Bill Cohen, former senior Wall Street mergers and acquisitions investment banker, author of Why Wall Street Matters and special correspondent at Vanity Fair. Bill, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. This uh, piece in the Tribune. I'm just so stunned. Well, just that this this is uh, being documented by the Tribune, uh, uh, another Marxist newsroom that's interested in just telling a story, not reporting on what's happening, even in Chicago, not uh, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, sort of the reverse. Mark Guarino, though, breaks from that mold. He's a managing editor of the Daily Line, Chicago correspondent for the Washington Post. He actually uh, went down and talked to some people uh, after a Dollar Tree on Chicago's west side was looted and burned down. Um, He writes, looting is a destroyer in these neighborhoods. I agree that uh, Gucci can rebuild and Gucci customers can move on. But you know who can't? 
Jerry Winfrey, 54 years old, the caretaker for his mother. The Dollar Tree looting and fire now means he has nowhere to buy groceries. He has no car. The nearest jewel might as well be on Mars. Can't go to the grocery store no more, he told Guarino. With Dollar Tree gone, it's going to be rough. This is Mr. Winfrey talking. It's a tragedy. It's horrible. Destroying things we need, he says. You know who agrees? Tamara Collins, 34 years old, who worked as a manager of the Dollar Tree for three years. Tonight, she's jobless. The writing as of the writing of this piece, the store employed 15 people, Miss Collins. Now we can't feed our kids. So it turns out that it's more than just property. And uh, and it, you know, it, it prompts the question that we've asked and many people have asked every time there is such uh, rioting and looting. Which is why are you destroying the neighborhoods in which you live for those of you? For those of you engaged in the violence, why are you hurting people in your neighborhood or your community? All of the talk for so many years about food deserts on the south and west side of Chicago and the lack of economic opportunity, the lack of commercial enterprise. And uh, this helps that. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Corey Brooks, senior pastor of New Beginnings Church of Chicago on the south side, founder and CEO of Project Hood uh, and Project Hood Communities Development Corporation. Pastor Corey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. So uh, give us a uh, damage assessment for the neighborhoods that you serve on the south side. Well, we've been hit pretty hard. Um, Just like the west side that you were mentioning in the Chicago Tribune, the south side is experiencing some of the same things, those Dollar General stores, those jewel stores, grocery stores. Uh, the pharmacies uh, have been hit. We've been taking people to grocery stores and pharmacies outside of our area because they've been looted. So it's very disheartening. It's very frustrating. But uh, I'm hopeful and prayerful that some of these institutions will come back. What are your uh, congregants as well as your pastoral colleagues saying about uh, the approach that Mayor Lightfoot has taken, the uh, role of the Chicago police in providing uh, safe neighborhoods in, in, in Southside communities. What's the what's the gist of it? You know, there's different points of view. Uh, my point of view is that um, they did a great job protecting downtown resources, protecting after that first night of looting, um, they instantly moved into making sure that um, the Gucci's of the world were protected. However, uh, in doing so, it left a lot open on the west side and south side. I don't feel that we did as good a job um, that could possibly have been done uh, to keep folks on our side of town protected a little better and our businesses protected. Yeah, and Streeterville, where I live, no problems. Nope, no problems. No, I, I haven't. I've seen some windows, seen some windows boarded up. I haven't seen uh, any uh, windows broken or. Or any uh, any unrest. It's actually been quite quiet in my neighborhood as soon as I can get to it. So, I'm uh, just uh, hey, just uh, want to let everybody know Lori Lightfoot's looking out for rich white guys like me. I hope that makes you feel better, Corey. <laughs> well, that's the reason why I'm looking out for us. Uh, that's the reason why I'm looking out for our community. Uh, I'm not waiting on any politician to come and save the day for for our community. I'm not waiting on any politician to come and make life better for us. And I'm definitely not waiting on government to make life better. Yeah. So we have to do our individual parts ourselves and make sure that we make life better for people. Uh, I read a piece that you wrote about uh, the the violence last week or over the last week that you sort of summarized. And it was and I know you're an optimistic guy. You have to be. That's your uh, 
you know, uh, line of uh, leadership. But um, it was sort of depressing just because of your assessment that it set the progress that you had made in, in the neighborhoods you serve and with all the people who work with you. You, you, you the headline was the, the violence set our black community back decades. Yeah, I believe that. Um, I think I'm now let me say this. I am for protest. I believe it's our first amendment right as Americans to be able to peaceably protest for. Yep. So I'm for protest. Mm-hmm. I protested before. I believe in it. But I do not believe at any time should we loot, should we riot, um, because it only does detriment most of the time for those who are at the, the bottom of the totem pole, those who are marginalized, those who are already doing without. And so I think our community uh, was hard hit and we were already struggling. Uh, as you mentioned earlier on, you were talking about earlier on your show um, from that article, we already have um, economic situations uh, that where we're deprived and where we're, we're struggling. And when you have these type of events to happen, it only is a setback. It, it sets us back even further, trying to create businesses, trying to c- convince businesses, hey, come into our neighborhood. It, it's safe. It, it's going to be all right. That's a very difficult sale to make sell. when there's rioting and rooting and so um, and looting and, and rioting, excuse me. Corey, what about uh, the attitude toward police, Chicago police specifically? Let's stick here in your, your neighborhoods on the south side. Do they do do your congregants do they see police as the enemy as the friend is it a mixed bag what's the disposition Yeah I think it's a mixed bag uh it's unfortunate that all the police are having to bear the crown of of a few bad apples and just like every profession just like journalists just like radio broadcasters just like pastors, more than a few bad apples all, in those professions Yeah you already you always have some bad apples and what you have to do is get rid of those bad apples but you don't throw everything out and so I'm for policy reform. I'm, I'm for um, um, some of the changes that need to be made, transparency and accountability, uh, better training and things like that. But I am never for dismantling or defunding the, the, the police. Those who say, you know, we need, a, uh, need, to, be, need to be free of police, I, I, uh, my question to them is, what do we do when there's a crime, when there's a murder, when there's a shooting, when there's a rape? Uh, what happens then? And so we can't be so anti-police that we just throw all of them out. Uh, so, uh, Pastor Corey, before we let you go, um, anything uh, specific uh, in terms of uh, a request or opportunities for engagement, since you mentioned them, that uh, people should uh, know about? Thanks, Dan. You know, people are asking me. Uh, I did a, a, a protest in Lake Forest, and I did one also in Libertyville. Lake Forest. And Yeah, and I tell everybody the same thing. We need four things. We need your time. We need people to invest some time. Come on down to the south side of Chicago. We need your time. We need you to think uh, positive solutions that we can uh, somehow move our uh, community forward. We need talents. We need people to come in with their talents and, and share with their skills and abilities. And we need treasure. We need people to make some positive investments, especially in organizations like Project Hood, so we can get programs up and going so that we can train people to take care of themselves and not have to depend on government. So it's very imperative that uh, people come alongside and help us and that this is a good time. He's Corey Brooks, senior pastor of New Beginnings Church of Chicago, founder and CEO of Project Hood Communities Development Corp. Pastor Corey, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Well, we've got some uh, good news and some not so good news about uh, COVID-19. Remember that? Uh, Wall Street Journal reporting uh, one study, pre-publication, from Italian universities and local public health authorities comparing case fatality rates in two Italian provinces during March versus April is the first to show that uh, the uh, uh, lethality of COVID-19 may be decreasing as well as doctors having through the heuristic exercise of trials and and error with treatments may be getting better at uh, treating COVID-19. Adjusting for age and comorbidities, the study found the overall death rate declined by some 40% from March to April, April, 40%, significant, with huge reductions in those over 80, down from 36% to 16%. Again, fatality rates, case fatality rates. Hypertension from 23 to 12, diabetes from 30 to 8, cardiovascular disease from 31 to 12, renal disease from 32 to 11 and a half. You get the idea. So that's the good news. The bad news is uh, a study by uh, economists at, uh, well, an economics professor at the Toulouse School of Economics uh, in France and the Harvard doctoral candidate find that uh, the uh, policy of emptying out the prisons could have, although it's not causal, they make it clear, uh, could have an impact on increasing the COVID-19 infection rate in the communities to which they return. And they looked at a community I'm very familiar with because I live in it, Cook County, Illinois, and the policy of uh, catch and release in Cook County that's been in force for actually a couple, three years, well before COVID. Now we've just added the, you know, turn people out of the jails as well, as you've seen in other states. For uh, but but of course the the largest uh, policy failure, uh, thinking both nationally and globally uh, during the pandemic has been with respect to protecting people in nursing homes and long term care facilities. And for more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Brian Blaze, who served as a special assistant to President Trump and the National Economic Council from 2017 to 2019, and is president of Blaze Policy Strategies LLC. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. Well, let's start with uh, the piece you co-authored with uh, uh, Stephen Moses at uh, the Center for Long-Term Care Reform. Uh, you know, it's it's remarkable how the plurality to, from plurality to supermajority of deaths state by state have occurred in long-term care facilities and nursing homes. And yet there's not the hue and cry you would expect. Uh, there's not the calls for rethinking how we operate long-term care facilities in this country or anything of the sort. Why is that? Well, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty at the beginning when politicians started making their decisions to uh, to lock down businesses, to issue stay-at-home orders. So obviously some of that was occurring. Um, just people uh, people acting rationally to the information that they were given. But I think, you know, a lot of it now is people are trying, are trying to justify their initial decisions. Um, and uh, as you said, you know, we have half of all deaths related to the coronavirus are nursing home related. Uh, and I think that is, you know, one, it's a testament to there were, there were some major policy mistakes by key politicians. Uh, you had governors in states like New York and Pennsylvania that mandated that nursing homes take patients released from hospitals 
um, even if they were still uh, positive, they still had the coronavirus. Right. Um, and it just spread through spread through those facilities like wildfire. And you have, you know, um, How, I, I'm just of people dying just on that score. I mean, up until less than two weeks ago, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan was still operating under that policy. She had it extended for a week that ran to the third week in May. I mean, this is well after we know what the result of that policy was in New York City and New York State. I just I'm baffled by that. I'm baffled, too. I mean, it's uh, I think it's inexcusable. And, uh, you know, obviously the widespread lockdowns and she's been pretty aggressive with uh, with widespread lockdowns and shutdowns and, you know, preventing um, barbers uh, from operating safely and, and, and people from returning to work under safe conditions um, to to put people back in harm's way like that really, I mean, it defies um, any reasoning and um, uh, doesn't make any sense. When we come back with uh, Brian Blaze, I want to talk about uh, Medicaid versus privately financed long-term care facilities. That really hasn't been part of the conversation either. I, I haven't even seen data on the respective case fatality rates of private versus uh, largely Medicaid underwritten long-term care facilities. So we'll start there with Brian Blaze, who served as a special assistant to President Trump at the National Economic Council from 2017 to 2019 and is the president of Blaze Policy Strategies, LLC, right after this. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Brian Blaze, who served as a special assistant to President Trump at the National Economic Council from 2017 to 2019. He's the president of Blaze Policy Strategies, and he co-authored a piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, what's happened at nursing homes and long-term care facilities in this country in terms of the case fatality rate from COVID-19. Um, you uh, and your colleague, right, Brian, the longstanding problems resulting from Medicaid's role left nursing homes unprepared to confront the coronavirus. Um, develop that for us. What do you mean the longstanding problems from Medicaid's role in providing the uh, financing for long-term care? So 62% of nursing home residents have their care paid at least in part by Medicaid. Although most people think about Medicaid as a welfare program for the poor, for long-term care, it's not that difficult to get onto Medicaid. So you can, for instance, have have a home worth up to $600,000 in all states and still get onto Medicaid. You can have retirement assets of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and that doesn't disqualify you from signing up for Medicaid. And there's a whole industry that helps what we say artificially impoverished people to get onto Medicaid. And Medicaid has historically... Um, been uh, for if people get on for long-term care, it's paying for nursing homes. So you have a flood of people on Medicaid for long-term care. And the way that states have had to resort to cutting costs is to underpay those facilities. So they pay their workers relatively low wages, you get high staff turnover, and you just have, you know, historically a poor nursing home uh, quality. Like nobody really wants to go to a nursing home. And uh, people don't want to send their family members uh, to nursing homes. 
but uh, people aren't properly preparing for long-term care expenses because of Medicaid's role in, uh, in, in, in covering those expenses. And then when they reach the age that they need long-term care, um, Medicaid is like the only is the only option because they haven't properly prepared. Do you have you seen data that uh, distinguishes the uh, location of the deaths for long term care facilities, uh, public you know public versus private? I have not seen data like that, but there are very few nursing homes that are going to be uh, majority private pay. So Medicaid covers half the cost. Medicare uh, covers the cost as well because of how easy it is to get on to Medicaid um, for for long-term care because Medicare pays for the first 90 days in many cases. Um, There's not a lot of private pay. There is, so assisted living is predominantly private pay. So um, it would be interesting to know what the uh, differences are between nursing homes and assisted living. Yeah, that would make sense in terms of a compare. So uh, given what you were describing about uh, Medicaid, like all these entitlement programs, you know, way government, way undershot the number of people with access it, way undershot the cost as a result. I mean, I think um, Medicare uh, was, they were off by a factor of 10 between 1965 and 1990, much less the, much less the following 30 years. So, so what needs to be done to reform Medicaid and uh, by extension, the way that we provide long-term care in this country? Yeah. So, I mean, it's going to, uh, it's not, reform's not going to happen overnight. I think the, the, the key point to, to recognize is that these programs aren't working well for the people that really need them. So we need to limit eligibility to those people that can't afford um, care on their own. We can't allow Medicaid to function as in uh, protection for uh, the inheritance of, of heirs of uh, seniors that need long-term care. So we need to manage eligibility properly. Um, and once you manage eligibility properly, what you can do then is allow people to receive services in their home instead of um, going to nursing home facilities. But we have to gradually um, have more private financing um, and more responsibility, uh, greater savings um, during our working years to to finance uh, long-term care expenses. But the main thing is it can't be so easy to get onto the government program. And uh, as as it was becoming well-known that, uh, as you said, the virus was spreading like wildfire through these facilities, did you see uh, facility operators make substantial changes to try to stop the spread, even if uh, they were under difficult state mandates in terms of receiving those who had been affected? Yeah, I mean, I almost certainly I think there's been heroic efforts um, at facilities across the country to combat um, the coronavirus. And, but the problem is that nursing homes are not set up um, for containment um, like that. So it has, you know... It, when the politicians ordered that people that had coronavirus be readmitted to nursing homes, um, it spread with you know limited ability for the nursing homes, um, even sort of operating under CDC guidelines to limit that contagion. And yeah, but, but yeah, clearly that was the case. And and um, thinking about uh, this, uh, uh, including the private sector, uh, Scott Gottlieb has another piece in the journal over the weekend talking about businesses getting back to work and the testing uh, regimes that should be put in place as sort of the new normal to make people feel comfortable about uh, the uh, workplace. I I assume something akin to what Gottlieb and others are recommending for 
employers would probably be appropriate if it's not already being implemented by long-term care facility operators. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, uh, that's I mean, there are employers too, I suppose, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, you need the, uh, cause you've got, uh, you have a lot of medical care going on. So you need all the proper, um, uh, PPE, um, and you need the tests to occur as frequently as possible. He is Brian Blaze. He's uh, he served as a special assistant to President Trump at the National Economic Council from 27 to 2019 and as president of Blaze Policy Strategies, LLC. Brian Blaze, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me on. Appreciate take, it. Take care. Like you, I've been spending a lot more time consuming live streamed content. And one thing that uh, I enjoy right now is watching movies that affirms my faith uh, uh, with all the choices. There's uh, much to watch. A lot of it's not so good. Uh, I've got an idea for you for for something that is good. Patterns of Evidence, the Red Sea Miracle. Uh, The Patterns of Evidence series answers the question, did the stories as written in the Bible really happen? Talked previously about the Exodus. Now let me tell you about the Red Sea Miracle and this latest installment from the Patterns of Evidence series. This is the uh, documentary series that follows investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney's faith-affirming journey in search of evidence for one of the Bible's most epic miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. The results of his, his investigation are monumental. Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, the Red Sea Miracle, at home, along with other movies in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, we end tonight with a uh, entertaining observation or two and um, a heartbreaking occurrence in Detroit that uh, has a happy ending. So let's end on an uplifting note. But first, Henry Davis, the case that he makes on behalf of President Trump for why President Trump is not racist, why President Trump doesn't hate black people, as is the accusation heard on the streets of uh, urban centers around the country. I got a bone to pick with this whole um, Donald Trump don't like black people all of a sudden thing, you know, in the midst of all of this mayhem. If Donald Trump didn't like black people, he would have never, ever been on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. If Donald Trump didn't like black people, he wouldn't have appeared in Bobby Brown's music video. If Donald Trump didn't like black people, he would have never ever, ever hung out with Muhammad Ali and Rosa Parks. If if Donald Trump didn't like black people, he would not have gotten an award from Jesse Jackson about how much he is appreciated in the black community. If Donald Trump didn't like black people, him and Al Sharpton wouldn't be taking photographs of him, you know, with his arm around, thumbs up and whatever and whatnot. If Donald Trump didn't like black people, he would have never had a black girlfriend. He would have never had a black girlfriend if he didn't like black people. You listen to what I'm saying. If Donald Trump didn't like black people, he showed in the hell when they got them three bass, them, remember them three boys that got caught stealing over in China, whatever, whatnot? He would have told them, lock their ass up. They deserve to go to jail if Donald Trump didn't like black people. 
far as I'm concerned, he liked black people more than some black people like black people. If he didn't like black people, that sounds like a franchise like uh, Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck. Uh, Henry Davis may have stumbled upon there. I, I love, I mean, you could have really ended with the first one, but it's worth hearing it all just for his enthusiasm. Uh, he wouldn't have appeared on, uh, he wouldn't have had a cameo on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air if he didn't like black people. <laughs> That's the best. Did not see that one coming. I thought maybe criminal justice reform or Kanye and Jim Brown to the White House. Did not see Fresh Prince of Bel-Air cameo coming. And now uh, the story of uh, Roderick Reynolds, right quick. Uh, you've probably heard the story that's gone viral. This is a father of five uh, whose family, his family, had their home burned down in Detroit. I put my family first. I put every dollar I got into the house. And there's nothing left. No, no. Like, it's a lot of stuff that I want, but I prioritize for my family. Every dollar, every dollar I get, I put into my house. And I take care of my kids, so it's devastating for me, but I mean, I'm a big boy, so I'm going to just keep keep on pushing. Takes things in stride more than most would. Uh, The happy ending to this terrible event of him losing his home, his family losing his home. More than $500,000 raised on GoFundMe via GoFundMe page to get uh, Mr. Reynolds and his family back into a home suitable for them. So that's the good news. And we'll end with that. Thanks for joining us uh, on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.